Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel, here to tell you that this program is about honey. We visit with Keith Fagan, owner of Lover's Lane Farm at his beekeeping center in Ukiah, California. We discuss bees on the loose, how they orient themselves to a new location, communicate with each other, and how Keith harvests the liquid gold. Keith was just leaving Lover's Lane Farm when I arrived. He was going to catch up with some bees on the loose, and that's when our conversation began in mid-August 2011. to a coffee shop drive through espresso place and I was there a little bit earlier getting uh, some coffee and uh, the uh, young ladies there were uh, not too happy that, that I was driving a beekeeping truck that had a couple bees flying around it they called uh, and complained after I got home and uh, the owner is upset and the two young ladies are upset because there's apparently some stray bees uh, still flying around the building so we're going to go and see what we can see, see if there's anything we can do to uh, address the uh, concerns and possibly... So what are the risks that they might have? A customer being stung? Uh, yeah, that would be probably the, the biggest concern I would have as a business owner or an employee. Uh, if there's someone there that uh, you know has a, an abnormal reaction to a honeybee sting. So if the bees are there, is there anything you can do about it? Well, we'll see. You know, if they're flying around, there really isn't going to be much I can do about it. This is kind of a first for me. Uh, if they're landing and maybe clustered together on the side of the building, we can easily uh, take care of them. You lure them into a hive? Uh, we could do that, but if it's just a couple of bees, you know, which I'm assuming it probably is, we'll probably just either put them in a cardboard box and take them back to the ranch, or I don't know. We'll have to see when we get there. How long have you been keeping bees? Well, I started uh, as a summer job uh, harvesting honey with my mentor when I was about 14. During the summer, I uh, would go out with him and pull the honey off of his hives, and then uh, he would uh, hire me uh, throughout the summers, throughout my teenage years, and we'd harvest honey. Uh, I also made their candles for them uh, out of the beeswax. And he also uh, kept bees on my parents' uh, ranch, so I got to see the process uh, year-round know and tag along with with the bees on on my family's ranch and then uh, I've been doing it commercially since uh, my mentor retired in 2007. Who was your mentor? Uh, his name's Jack Booth he's a retired uh, fish and game biologist for uh, the California Department of Fish and Game. He's been keeping bees here since the late 70s here in Ukiah so he's pretty knowledgeable about keeping bees in inland Mendocino County. So keeping bees is something you've been doing more than half your life so it sounds like it's a career. It is, yeah, it definitely is at this point. We're getting to the cappuccino place, and uh, let's see what they say, and we'll find out if it's okay with them if uh, we record what's happening. Okay, sounds good. This is where they need to be. And, and they need to be here because this is where your truck stopped when you yeah. came and got some coffee earlier. They, they stopped. As soon as the vehicle stops, they start flying around and orienting themselves to that new location. When you say orient themselves, what are they seeking to do? They basically just kind of take a mental picture of the surroundings, of the new surroundings. And then they fly in reverse while taking another picture, kind of zigzagging. And then when they have a, a big enough sort of picture and 
kind of a waypoint, they'll they'll go ahead and start trying to establish normal uh, colony operations there. Well, let's find out what's going to happen here. I'm a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have to go outside and I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was definitely a mistake uh, coming here with the with the bee truck. So no, I mean, I apologize for that. No, it's okay. I definitely want you to get some coffee. I just I looked out the window and I was like, oh, there's there's bees everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Did have a couple of nervous customers. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's uh, to be expected. We had one customer that thought he was okay until he wasn't okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, ah, bees. What happened was when the truck stopped, the stray bees that were on the honey boxes started flying and trying to reorient to the to a new home which was the back of my truck right there's no queen there oh, but they're just oh, trying to orient see, so they're more. they're still trying to Try. trying to orient themselves to this new location and when they don't find anything like the rest of their colony they're going to give up and they'll be all gone by the end of the day yeah but, no, i know, you know they're, they're not just going to do this forever yeah. but keith why do the bees come when the car shows up my truck was here earlier and uh when the truck stopped they started taking orientation flights off of the truck. After the truck took off, the bees that were in the middle of their orientation flight stuck around. And now whenever a new car shows up, they are trying to reorient themselves to the car. To and determine the car... if that car was actually your truck. Right. To get back on board and go to wherever they thought you might have been going. Right. Exactly. I don't think the goal was to, to uh, get on board and go. I think the goal was to say, okay, this is my new home right here. We're going to orient, take a, an aerial picture of this location and this vehicle and this structure and use that as a grid for a new home base. And then when the truck sped away, I think that totally threw them off. What kind of abilities do they have to orient themselves? Obviously, they're good because they've done it for millions of years. Yeah. Yeah, they're actually really good at it. What they do is they fly out from the, the structure they're on. You know, in, in the case of it being a beehive, if it's the first time they leave the beehive, they'll, they'll leave the hive and then turn around in the air and look at the hive. And they'll zigzag back and forth, taking note of the location uh, of the hive, the, the design, the color of the hive, uh, all of the characteristics that, you know, form the visual picture of where their home is. And then they'll keep flying backwards from it, up and away, and taking a bigger picture every time until they have a full mental picture of their home in there. Eventually, when they feel like they have enough information on the, the home, they'll just uh, turn around and begin normal foraging activities. They will communicate location of nectar and pollen sources through a series of uh, dances to the other uh, bees in the hive. Um, in the dance, they communicate direction and uh, elevation and a few other characteristics of they're basically little GPS machines in their brains that they use, and they, and they dance it out to uh, communicate a, a, a prolific uh, nectar source. And the level of, the, of enthusiasm of the dance determines how strong the nectar source is. So if they dance really aggressively, um, it will uh, signal more bees to go and exploit this new nectar or pollen source. So when you talk about elevation, and here at the point where they left your truck a couple of hours ago, what is the elevation that you refer to? The height off the ground or the height above sea level? I think it's probably both. You know, I'd probably have to go confirm that. But as far as a nectar source, if, if the beehive is down in a valley and the nectar source is up in a tree, say a eucalyptus tree 100 feet up or 
up on top of a mountain, that would be one of the things that would be communicated in, in the dance is, is, is that elevation. Also, the direction of the sun from the next nectar source is, is a key way that they communicate where the nectar source is. That information is communicated through the dance, the, the direction of the sun from the, from the source of, of the food. Is this ability among bees uh, ubiquitous worldwide, or does it vary from territory to territory or species of bees? The Apis mellifera species, it's, it's a universal language for, for all Apis mellifera species. And then, you know, the different species of, of native pollinators and other, other bees will also have various forms of abilities similar to honeybees, but they might, they might vary a little bit. Um, the honeybees are the most uh, social of the bees, and they have the biggest populations. And by social, you mean among themselves? Right. They have the biggest, uh, largest colony numbers, population numbers. What would those numbers be? At the peak of the season, meaning right around the summer solstice, around June 21st, the population will be anywhere from 50 to 80,000 bees per colony. Some, you know, some of the exceptional colonies maybe up to 100,000. And then around the winter solstice, which is when they're at their most contracted, hibernated state, they would have as little as 10 to 20,000. A colony equals one hive? Right, one hive with one queen, ideally. How many uh, colonies then do you have? Right now, we're, we're running about somewhere between 500 and 550. You've got quite a few bees. We do. It'll go down a bit in the winter. We, we lease some additional colonies for honey production here in, in Ukiah Valley. But uh, yeah, during spring and summer, we'll have upwards of 500 to 800 colonies. What's the lifespan of a honeybee? It's going to vary depending on the season when they're really active. Uh, and there's a lot of foraging and nectar sources to uh, discover. They could live as little as uh, four weeks. In the dead of winter, when they're quote-unquote hibernating, they can live several months because they're not as active. So the less work, the less active they are, the longer they live. Correct. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. We're in conversation with Keith Fagan, owner of Lover's Lane Farm, where he harvests liquid gold from his thousands and thousands of bees in Ukiah, California. Back here at the ranch, the back of your truck, you were saying why the bees are now on the truck? Yeah, we, we had the, the honey supers on the truck. We unloaded them off the truck and put them in our harvesting tent here. And the stray bees that came out of the boxes are still looking for the boxes they were in and, and have now oriented themselves to the truck. So. so you have, looks like, about 15 or so on your hand, and there's way more than we can count on the back of the truck there. That's looks right. Looks like a couple, couple of uh, bee layers thick. Yeah, there's several hundred here, uh, workers and drones, and they're, you know, they're just trying to get oriented. They're just doing what's you know, natural to them and trying to establish a new home here. We'll move them at the end of the day. I'll probably shake them into a, one of our hives here on the property to, and they'll just uh, they'll smell the, uh, the queen in that hive and they'll kind of reorient to that hive. When you say workers and drones, what's the different task that each one of those have? Uh, the worker bees, they're females. Uh, they're the smallest of the of the three, uh, you know, castes or sexes of, of bees. I'm gonna go ahead and stop and give you a veil. <laughs> I like that idea. Just put that on, and that should be plenty. Got it. And you wear this veil uh, whenever you're working with them as well, but you're not at the moment. Right. Yeah. If I'm if I'm working with the hives, I'll I'll generally wear that. It's not fun to get stung in the face. No. No matter how. 
accustomed you get to getting stung. <laughs> I've never gotten accustomed to getting stung. Yeah. What we did was we got the, the supers or honey collection boxes in here now. We got them uh, taken out onto an, an uncapping bench. From this bench I'll, um, I'll take each frame and uh, I will cut the capping, the wax capping off the frame. And the, the capping is the uh, basically a, a cover the bees put over the honey uh, to protect it. Um, and it also is a signal that the, the honey has been dehydrated down to their liking. They, they bring, when they bring the nectar into the hive, it's, it's, it's um, generally 80% water or more, and, which is very fermentable. So they'll uh, dehydrate it down by um, creating uh, airflow throughout the hive, and they'll actually be able to uh, evaporate the nectar down to below 20% uh, water. At that point, they will uh, put the capping on, the wax capping over the top of the, of the cells, and then that's also a, an indicator that it's ready to harvest. When we people don't take the honey, the bees use it for their own food? Yeah, it becomes their, um, their ca sustenance? carbohydrate for the winter. Um, in the winter, they, they vibrate their bodies to generate heat, and there's a set of muscles that they use to generate heat in the wintertime, and, and the honey gives them the energy they need to, to do that. The colder it gets, the more honey they'll uh, they'll consume, and then uh, on the winter solstice on December 21st, they'll start to ramp up their brood production, and at that point they'll really start to use the previous season's honey a lot more rapidly, because they're raising a lot more larvae. Do you have any ideas on how they know that it's the winter solstice? They can sense day length. They you know they're very very intimately in tune with with day length, and. Um, the queen uh, can sense um, when uh, the days start to get longer and usually within a couple days of December 21st you'll find that she starts to ramp up her egg production. The same thing with June 21st, she'll start to ramp down egg production usually within a few uh, days of that day. Do you know the numbers of the eggs that the queen produces? Uh, she can lay several thousand each day at the peak of the season. In the summer they're only living you know somewhere around four weeks so they she has to um, replace that and, and then some. So, How long does the queen live? I, last I read, I think the record was around eight years. Um, but generally for a commercial uh, operation, the queen can be expected to live anywhere from one to three years. So do your thing. Okay, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to um, fire up some equipment. And then uh, I'm going to heat up the uncapping knife. We're going to start uncapping. And then Alexander is going to start loading the frames into the extractors. And, and that's basically it. And then the honey so will start flowing. the extractors are the two pieces right here. Yeah, that's right. They spin, and the centripetal force takes it to the outside. Yeah, they're just big centrifuges. <clears throat> this one holds 30 frames. This one holds 20. And, and then you um, pour it into the bucket from the spout at the bottom of the container. Exactly, and they're not filtered. We just run it through this wire mesh strainer, so it's it's uh, un unfiltered honey, you know, which I feel is the best quality. When people filter honey, when your colleagues filter honey, what is it that the filter extracts? The filter takes up takes out any particulate, you know, uh, including pollen, which is uh, considered nowadays to be very beneficial. It also, you know, filtration, uh, depending on how uh, aggressive you want to get with it, you know, can can uh, require a lot of heat, which will degrade the, the quality of the honey uh, in several ways with aroma and, and flavor. You know, the, the, the more aggressively you filter honey, the more you're sort of going to beat it up. The way I like to do it is, is uh, you know, as, as hands-off as possible. I like to, you know, try to 
process the honey as, as minimally as possible so that it's in, in a very similar state as it would be in the beehive when it's in the jar. Well, let's fire up a machine. Okay. There's a, there's a little bit of honey in the, in the cappings, and so when the cappings fall in here, this is another centrifuge that will spin out some even more uh, additional honey. So with, with this uh, equipment, we, we can recover, you know, at least uh, somewhere around six gallons for every barrel of honey we, we extract, which is quite a bit, you know. And the barrel is? Uh, a barrel is uh, 60 gallons, um, or 640 pounds, roughly. So, Keith, the noise in the background is the uh, centrifuge, and you're, you're scraping the wax off the frames with a hot knife. How many pounds of wax can be made from how much honey? It takes seven pounds of honey, roughly, to make one pound of beeswax. The nectar from the, from the flowers in bloom will stimulate the, the, bee, the honeybee's wax glands to secrete wax. And so, the way we do this is we preserve all of the honeycomb that we possibly can by just cutting the cappings off. Then we can just simply put this right back inside the hive and the bees, all they have to do is fill it back up with honey. They don't have to draw the wax out again. How long so, would that take? Well, it depends on how, how much uh, honey flow there is, how much nectar is blooming out there. It also depends on the population of the hive. A uh, hive with a, with a healthy population of, of summer bees will, in a prolific uh, nectar flow, can easily uh, build one of these, you know, in a couple days. But these are, um, this is a very valuable asset to a beekeeper. Is drawn, we call this drawn comb. Drawn in the sense that the cells within the frames are already made. Right. That's the valuable asset. Right. So all you have to do is put it on the hive and, and the bees just have to fill it up. They don't have to build it first. So if you've got a lot of this stuff, you'll, you'll make more honey because it's already done. Makes sense. Dollars and cents. That's right. Wax is fragile stuff. It can melt. So in the winter time, it needs to be stored properly. Uh, also, there's a a pest uh, that's quite a nuisance called a wax moth. And uh, in weak beehives or empty beehives, uh, with the right weather conditions, a wax moth can uh, can completely destroy all this in a matter of days, so we want to keep the wax moss at bay. So as soon as we get 30 frames uncapped, he's going to fire up that that, uh, that centrifuge and, and uh, we'll, we'll start seeing the honey flow out of the bottom of it there. How many frames do you plan on doing today? Well, uh, we, we pulled 30 uh, honey supers, and there's eight frames to each honey super. Whatever 30 times 8 comes out to be is, is what we're going to do today. Sounds like it's uh, about 240. I'll take your word for it. When you do 8 loads on a good day, what's the volume of honey that you have? Uh, if all of these are full, we, we should probably get over, a, over one barrel. Um, so over 60 gallons is what we'd hope for. And these are pretty full, so I would expect to get somewhere around there. And then you bottle it up, you do that here, Yes. and uh, label it and sell it by a half pint, pint and quart. Yeah, we have various sizes, starting from eight ounces on up to a gallon. 
and yeah, we, we sell it at uh, farmers markets and local uh, grocery stores. It's a sweet business. Yes, it is. That's why I do it. I have a I have a weak spot for sweet sweet food. And my mentor, when I was when I first started doing this, it was hard to keep him from hard to keep me from uh, eating the honey. I would get kind of sick, but it was worth it. I would taste every frame when I was a teenager doing this. Every, not a frame would go by that I would not sample. Did you find a difference in the flavors? Yes, yeah, every frame is going to be subtly different, yeah. So the flavor of the honey is based on the nectar. That's right. The, the yeah, okay. type of flower that's in bloom is going to determine the flavor of, of, the, uh, of the honey. And you know, with, with Mendocino County, there's so many different wild plants out there and wild land that a lot of uh, flower uh, blooms overlap. So it's really hard to isolate individual kinds of honey here in inland Mendocino County. Different things bloom at the same time. Um, generally, a lot of the honey that's produced here is can only be called wildflower. The wildflower is generally consists of uh, black wild blackberries, uh, vetch blossom, uh, star thistle, toyon, pennyroyal, I think that's about it. Those are the main contributors to, to our summer wildflower honey anyway. Uh, occasionally we are able to uh, produce a variety called uh, vetch blossom, which uh, is a pretty common little purple flower that grows on roadsides and in the hills. And it starts to bloom usually the last week of April on through the beginning of June. And it produces a uh, almost a water clear, very delicate, very light honey that's hard to come by. We don't usually make a lot of it because it blooms so early, usually before a lot of the bees are, uh, have the populations uh, to, uh, to take advantage of that crop. How far from here do your bees roam when they're out gathering the nectar? I have colony yards uh, spread out between uh, Calpella and Hopland. Generally, I think in Mendocino County, there's there's so many things in bloom for so much of the year that I don't think they have to go far. So bee and bees will never travel further than they have to for food. I think they have the ability to travel several miles um, to forage for, for food, but around here, I, I would think they would probably stay within a couple miles at the most. And you're very calm about around the bees. You're not wearing gloves or a hood like you gave me to put on. Yeah. Yeah, it just comes from uh, working around them a lot, I guess. You know, I do this every day, so uh, I, you get pretty used to having them around. And then, and they sense that too. You know, they can they can sense uh, nervousness. They can sense uh, your mood. So the more confident you are, the the better the bees are around you. It comes with practice. Keith, do you have any particular precautions when you bottle the honey that the containers be sterilized? The bottling plant that we get the jars from uh, sells the jars as they're pre-sterilized, so they're, they're designed to be ready to bottle as soon as they uh, uh, get here. Um, and honey is a very stable, very shelf-stable product, which uh, we're kind of lucky. Uh, it doesn't spoil it in doesn't heat or spoil, cold. It essentially keeps forever. Um, it will crystallize, but um, you know it's still perfectly edible. You know, A lot of people think that when honey is crystallized, uh, it's, it's no longer edible, but it's certainly not the case. You, is there a way of uncrystallizing it? Yeah, you can. Uh, the best way to do it is is with a very low and slow heat, uh, with a double boiler. Um, you just put it in a metal pan, put that pan inside of uh, a pot of uh, water, 
So two pots of water essentially and then on low heat for several hours. We'll warm the honey, liquefy it, and also preserve the mo most of the aroma and flavor you know, without uh, cooking it essentially. That's what you want to avoid is getting the honey too hot. But uh, crystallized honey is just fine. The only thing that can damage honey is the addition of water. But with honey, the way it is, you know, it's under 20% water. Uh, you know, no, no bacteria can, can really live in it. It dehydrates and kills bacteria. So, and then that's another reason they use it in uh, hospitals these days is they use it to treat wounds and burns because it, uh, it actually has natural amounts of hydrogen peroxide in it in addition to some other properties that, that help uh, for rapid healing. So. Do you sell your honey to any hospitals or pharmaceutical companies? <clears throat> I don't, no. All, all my, most of my honey goes directly to farmer's market customers and local Mendocino County folks. And, um, but there is uh, some patented uh, brands from uh, New Zealand and whatnot, from uh, Manuka honey and some of the darker honeys that supposedly have more of the uh, antioxidants. <clears throat> the darker honey supposedly contain more, a higher amount of antioxidants. I'm not sure about, about the facts behind that, but they have patent, patented a product uh, in Germany called MetaHoney, and they are using that in hospitals. Um, but I don't think it's widely used in hospitals in America quite yet. Keith Fagan, thanks very much for being with us on Radio Curious, and I have the usual closing questions, and that is, is there a eureka or an aha moment that you remember that changed your life or gave you a philosophy or way of living to follow? Well, you know, in the last few years, um, you know, it's been different for me. I've always worked for somebody else, um, you know, and it's been pretty uh, unique to go to work for myself and work with something so tangible and uh, work outside. And so that's kind of an aha moment. Um, you know, I, I really like what I do. It may not be the most profitable thing in the world, but, you know, I, I'm really enjoying my work and uh, a lot of happiness comes from that. Um, you know, so I'd say that's kind of a continuing aha moment, you know, just, just being able to do what I want to do and work, work for myself. And you may have just answered the next question, but that, that question is, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? <laughs> you know, keep doing what I'm doing, uh, raise my daughter, spend more time with my family. Uh, and, and keep the honey flowing. Yeah, see some other honey-producing regions in the world. I think, you know, I'd really like to do more of that. I haven't really done that. You know, visiting some beekeepers from, uh, see how they do things in different parts of the world. I think that would be pretty fun. And so. finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I read one, uh, I don't know, probably a year or so ago. It was called uh, The Secret Life of Bees, and I thought that was a really nice book. There was some rituals that they practice that seem to have been gathered from long ago times that were really intriguing with the, with the beehives. When someone passes away, they had this ritual that they did, and there were some uh, some really unique things in that in that book that that I learned about bees that that were uh, pretty fascinating. But, but it's a great story. Well, Keith Fagan, thanks for inviting us to uh, Lovers Lane Farm and learning about bees. Yeah, you got it. I appreciate your time. Keith Fagan is the owner and beekeeper of Lovers Lane Farm in Ukiah, California where he harvests liquid gold from his thousands and thousands of bees that if you could, as I did, you'd find it tastes just like it does when taken directly from the honeycomb. The book that Keith Fagan recommends is The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. 
This interview was recorded on the streets of Ukiah and at Lover's Lane Farm in Ukiah, California in mid-August 2011. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.